Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. The drawings look absolutely beautiful. What it is that the Indy 11 plans to do with 11 Park taking over the diamond chain building there in downtown Indianapolis, not too far away from Lucas Oil Stadium, and quite literally recreating a city down there. A 20,000-person stadium possible for soccer for the Indy 11. Apartments, retail, you got the green space right there on the river. It changes a lot of things. It is a visionary project. That much shouldn't be denied. Tony Katz, good to be with you, but there are questions. Like, who pays for this thing? How do these kinds of projects work? And when we see stadium funding deals, usually it leads to people saying, why am I paying for a stadium? And then, of course, there's the big question. Does all of this matter if the Indy 11 can't go to Major League Soccer, to MLS, and do they need to? Saul Ozdemir joins us right now. He is the owner of the Indy 11 and of the Keystone Group, engaging uh, in uh, this project, building out this $1 billion stadium uh, district. And uh, full disclosure, I've known Ursal for a while. You guys know that I'm a supporter of the Indy 11 uh, repeatedly. I go to games, and I've been fortunate enough uh, to spend time with Ursal both personally and professionally, uh, let's start with this desire. This is not a small project, young man. This is swinging for the fences. Uh, Why downtown Indy as opposed to a place like Westfield? Why the diamond chain building? Why this project? Good morning, Tony. Thanks for having me. Uh, You made my day when you called me a young man. I feel uh, uh, blessed you called me a young man. I'm here for you. Thanks for doing your show. Thank you so much. Well, um, as you know, city leaders uh, back in the 70s chose sports as an economic driver. They were trying to figure out what to do with downtown, how to energize downtown. And they chose uh, sports as a business model to bring and create jobs and economic impact. Indiana Sports Corp was the first of its kind in the country. It hosted many, many global events and helped to create a downtown what it is today. So... Um, we really kind of continue to build on the, what the city leaders have uh, visioned back in the 70s from building an NFL stadium without a team, uh, rebuilding a new stadium for the basketball uh, Pacers and a uh, new baseball stadium and expansion of convention centers. And uh, we're, we're building on the vision that our city has built. So you take, a look, at this, you take a look at this site. The, the diamond chain building, and you're not just putting in a stadium, you're putting in a city. Um, was this to get it sold, or do you feel that this is how you create development that creates more value? Well, the, we've said this almost 2014 and on, um, even without a site, without on that, we always expressed that the soccer being the, the global sport, when you go to Europe and South America, other parts of the world, these soccer teams have been around over 100 years. Cities are growing around the soccer stadiums. You go to Chelsea in London, if you're a Chelsea fan, you know, you live in the area. It's part of the culture and fabric. You go to Spain, Madrid, you know, so the stadiums uh, have helped to build neighborhoods. And it's an anchor tenant. And people want to close to that. People want to walk to that. It creates a walkable uh, environment. 
And we always felt like soccer being global and, 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 and very diverse and attracts you know, all kinds of uh, different people, backgrounds. And we wanted to have the same experience regardless who does it. And what's important is that, as, as you've seen, when you just build a stadium without much development around it, it's hard to just develop around it. And we've seen that with basically the Soul Stadium, beautiful stadium. Not much has been developed around that. We wanted to make sure that we're not just really building soccer stadium. We're creating a whole village and transforming the part of downtown. You block away from the soil, uh, on the river, a block away from Victory Field, the convention center, the, the 6,000-seat amphitheater, TCU, White River Park. And, and can, more importantly, to create a whole area for downtown to, to be attractive, uh, to attract even for sports goers that come in downtown, uh, regardless you come for soccer, you're coming for local soil stadium events and victory field and concerts, conventions. We're creating a village that is going to be 365, uh, somewhere that you live, work, play, and happens to have a soccer stadium with that, which will always increase that value. But more importantly, the location is so critical that uh, because of this part of the city, you have a data center that blocks the river to the south of us. You have diamond chain that's been there 100 years which is 20 acres that blocks the river accessibility. And then we have a, a, a substation a power plant to the north of us. So it really blocks the, any access from public to the river. By doing what we're doing, we're accessing the river and, and being part of the White River vision that our city leaders have put together to activate the river. So regardless, basically, the stadium, uh, this is going to completely transform that part of town, especially the state and city's investment to Alonco to bring a Fortune 1000 company right across the river with the new bridge and, and the street is going to go through our project, Levin Park, the Henry Street, that is going to connect a global headquarters of a company to us, to downtown. And we, we believe that it's going to continue to help to re-energize and redevelop and, and create economic impact to the west of downtown. And we will get into the idea of uh, the, the the city leaders' visions versus uh, your own visions. Talking to Rasaw Ozdemir, owner of the Keystone Group uh, and owner of the Indy Eleven soccer team, the Eleven Park Project, going in the Diamond Chain Building downtown Indianapolis. When these projects occur, and you and I have discussed this, the conversation is. Who in the world pays for this? You're talking about a billion-dollar entity here, and there's always something that goes to the people where they're like, hey, we just have a stadium. Uh, pay for this through all sorts of means. How is that happening in this situation, and how do you sell that to the people? Yeah, great question. So this is different than, than, than other projects. One main difference is that we are going to invest privately over a billion dollars. So this is a real estate development, and, and the, the, the state bill that passed in 2019 basically says that I have to pay 20% of the stadium, which will be publicly owned. The stadium will be publicly owned. I still have to pay 20%, and Indy 11 has to still operate and pay the operating expenses. The 80% of the taxes that will come to pay for public loan venue, it's not just for soccer. Now, remember, you can have football games, lacrosse, rugby, you will have the largest concerts in the state because you can have up to 30,000 seat outdoor concerts in there. We'll have international games. So it's not just the soccer, but obviously there will be an anchor tenant in the 11 for that to do that. So the way you structure that, it's 20% we pay privately to the stadium. 
Real estate is privately developed, so we're investing over $1 billion. But for the stadium, this project wouldn't be possible to, for us to invest this kind of investment for that part of the downtown. And 80% of the, the, the um, cost that pays for the stadium is, comes from the real estate that we generate. The generation, basically, the state of Indiana allowed to capture up to $9.5 million a year. That money, basically, the city CIB will capture those, and they'll use those funds to pay for the portion of the stadium. So the, we are generating the taxes, and we're not capturing all. The city's not capturing all. By de- developing some uh, hotels and office and residential and a lot of restaurants, it's creating you know, over a billion dollars economic impact under the area to taxes. And it's only state is allowed only capture a portion of that to go towards to pay for the stadium. So in some ways, we're creating the taxes, the district, by investing privately. The private investment generates the taxes. Some of that will go towards paying for the stadium. The rest of them goes back into the, into the funds. This isn't taking any road project. This is not taking any school infrastructure. If we didn't really do this, these taxes wouldn't exist anyway. So, it's, so it's your argument is you're not taking from uh, you're not taking from other places to pay for this. You're paying for this. It's it's your investment investment group of a, of a billion dollars, and your take is we're creating tax revenue. We aren't taking it. That's correct. This, the, the, the reason we're also doing a larger development also is that we need to create enough economic impact, thousands of jobs, to generate enough taxes to pay. For the 80% of the stadium, right, 20% is still privately paid. So we're paying 20% for a stadium that we don't own. The 80% comes from the taxes that the district would generate from the private investment. And it will be significantly more taxes generated. We're the only, only capturing 9.5% of that. And what's, other, what's different about this stadium project is also we're also financing this project. So any cost or overruns will be borne by us privately as well. We'll pay 20%, and anything basically goes over that, we will also pick up the additional cost of that. So that is really taking a lot of the risk and, and uh, pressure from, uh, from the taxes. Right. Uh, we, we believe we're generating significantly more taxes, and only portion of that is allowed to go towards the stadium. So it's a win-win-win for, for the city-state and, and to the neighborhood. Before, before I let you go, I only got about 30 seconds left. One of the conversations is all this is for naught if the Indy 11 doesn't go to Major League Soccer, which would have, as Alexi Lawless pointed out in a series of tweets uh, uh, to people, uh, members of the Brickyard Battalion and others, uh, you're talking about a $300 million-plus franchise uh, tag, right, that you'd have to pay Major League Soccer to join. As you see it, in about 30 seconds, does the Indy 11 have to join Major League Soccer in order to be successful, in order to make this project work? And if not... Is the Indy 11 still looking to join Major League Soccer? Yeah, great question. The, so the, the taxes to generate 80% or I'm paying 20% of the stadium doesn't really rely on the size of the stadium. Thus, we're building so much private development around it, great economic impact, jobs, and taxes. So the, 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 the stadium is 15000 or 20000 really. The taxes are basically coming from the real estate portion of the uh, project. And... The team needs a stadium. As you know, um, your, your second division or third division or AAA or minor league, you have to have a proper venue. We've been playing on a track venue converted with soccer right. and, a, and a Carroll Stadium, which has been great for, for us. But yeah, as you know, we don't have 
uh, in our fast food, we have 40 parties. We don't have a place to cook food. We have to bring food And in. this is a There's huge no upgrade. I understand that. But only because I'm up against it. I'm up against time. Are you looking to take the team Major League Soccer, yes or no? We have always said that, Tony, that you know we will never say no to that. We don't need to go to Major League Soccer to build a stadium. The, the project is self-generated enough. We're making a transformational impact to this area to create this village. So we're going to need the 20000 with or without MLS. But it does make it easier when you have a venue already built. There's an opportunity. We will basically look at that opportunity and decide at that time. I appreciate Ursalo's Demir taking the time uh, to be with us. India 11, Keystone Group. The, the reason this matters for the whole of Indiana is because this is the conversation of how you keep talent. Right? There, there's no doubt that Bloomington does an absolutely miraculous job of attracting people to IU. Bloomington's a fun town. It's a good college town. You can have a great time. I don't argue that Bloomington is doing a poor job in trying to keep talent in Indiana after graduation. That'd be a, that'd be a foolhardy thing to do. Like somehow it's solely and completely up to West Lafayette for Purdue or Muncie up to Ball State because if it was up to Muncie, nobody would stay. And that's part of the problem. We have these places that have opportunity, but we don't have the things within those communities to keep people around. Indianapolis is the draw in that respect. So Indianapolis needs to do better. Now, the one thing we didn't get into in the conversation is how do you decide to invest a billion dollars into a city that isn't taking care of itself? Now, there's a whole story from the Indianapolis Business Journal about how the perception of Indianapolis is different than the reality of Indianapolis. I'm going through that story right now to see where I fall, see what kind of data points they're using and and whether I agree or disagree about how things are actually better versus the perception, which is things are not good. And let me tell you, that is the perception and also the reality that is tangible. doesn't mean that there aren't other data points worth looking at. But you need a, 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 a city that wants to grow. Ursaul was overly complimentary of, of the city and their plans. And when you take a look at downtown, what they're doing with a group called the Lanco and right there on, on the river and, and uh, opening up some of these lands, opening up some of these opportunities, that is true. But very little of this has to do with, at least from an outsider's view of, my gosh, the city has done a fantastic job of marketing itself. Far from it. You drive around downtown Indianapolis and you're like, what happened to this place? Well, COVID happened to this place. More than COVID happened to downtown Indianapolis. That's the argument that gets made. And when you see storefront after storefront after storefront closed down, that isn't from the fact that people didn't come back from COVID. That's because you had riots and other things. You have a city that doesn't seem to care about a homeless issue. And you're like, what's the point of it all? What am I fighting here? This is crazy. So a project like that from Keystone Group and Ursaul Ozdemir creates massive opportunity for massive growth. This is the kind of thing that reinvigorates and revitalizes. It has to happen in more than just Indy. It has to happen in Indy, but it has to happen in more than just Indy to make Indiana a place that people stay. We were talking about this yesterday. We're behind the eight ball regarding uh, Ohio, for example. We just are, so I don't know why we're pretending we're not. We're definitely behind the eight ball when it comes to Nashville. 
we have to do something about it and we have to set a plan. What I think is interesting about Ursaul is that he's still playing out the sports angle. Well, he owns the team. It makes perfect sense. Is there still room in sports? And is that the case in terms of how you are going to have things in Bloomington outside of IU? Things outside of Purdue and West Lafayette? How do you actually build up Muncie to be a thing? And how do you then create the, the opportunity for furthering the corridor between like Indianapolis and Fort Wayne? Now, I haven't even gotten to a conversation about Gary. But all these things are part of all these things. They're all part of this larger conversation. So that's why I bring it to you. That's why I think what the, what he's doing and what our Keystone Group is doing down there matters so much. And uh, and I'm a sucker for soccer. People are always like soccer. That's a that's just European communist game. Those people. May I just, for the record, and I mean this with everything in me. <laughs> soccer's awesome. Always has been. Enjoy every bit of it. Every bit of it. I'm looking forward. I am looking forward to the stadium. Looking forward to the whole experience that they're going to create in that area of Indianapolis. Between that and uh, and what's going on with Lucas Oil, good times afoot, people. Good times afoot. Keep it here. This is Tony Katz today. You know, I was here last year and we visited uh, the base where Polish and American troops were and uh, standing side by side, showing our strength and determination. The truth of the matter is, the United States needs Poland and NATO as much as NATO needs the United States because there is no way in which for our ability to operate anywhere else in the world and our responsibilities extend beyond Europe. We have to have a security in Europe. It's that basic, that simple, that consequential. So it's the single most consequential alliance, I would argue, maybe the most consequential alliance in history. I do not know if the U.S. alliance with Poland is the most consequential alliance in history, but it is very true that Poland is an ally of allies because Poland recognizes what it is the United States has brought the world, which is freedom and opportunity. It is Poland that still reveres Ronald Reagan, former President Reagan, and understands the horror of the Cold War in a way very few people do. These people went from the horrors of Nazism to the horrors of communism and living in absolute hell, the likes of which there is not an American alive today who can really make such a claim to have lived that long in that horror. Poland does matter. On that, Joe Biden and I agree, and yeah, 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 I I, I get you. It's kind of weird to say that out loud, but it is true. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Poland is a solid ally. In a Europe that isn't, Poland is. And I've made the argument before, and I'm willing to make it again. One of the things that we need to do as a nation is rethink who our top-tier allies in Europe are. Is it really still France and Germany? Now, Germany best based on GDP. But how about the people who really recognize what the United States brings? And doesn't look at wokeness, but looks at past results to dictate the future. That's Poland. And we should make sure that we keep a nice special relationship with them. And we should ask ourselves whether or not being uh, Fran- putting France as a leader in, this, uh, in today's world makes any sense at all. I didn't say you should hate France. I I didn't say you should ignore France or discard France completely. I mean, I like Brie. 
just noticing that we do have other allies that are worthy of our respect. This is Tony Katz today. Oh, baby. Why don't you just meet me in the middle? So the Supreme Court today heard an argument. An argument that quite literally can change how we utilize the internet, how we share information about how these platforms deal with information. And I got to admit, it's not just one case that they're hearing, it's two. One today, one tomorrow, and it's fascinating stuff. I mean, you want to get into some real nitty-gritty about what the what the Supreme Court has to look at. This is one of those cases. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, it's good to be with you. This is all about Section 230, guys. This is all about whether or not we can say you are a platform and therefore you are not responsible for what people post on the platform, even if it's hateful, even if it's vile, even if it's dangerous. And then we say yes, but then they utilize that to go about saying, well, we can decide that this is good and this isn't, and therefore they censor what? Conservatives. People possibly like you and me, people you might know, and say you can't speak, you can't share, you, the New York Post, can't share a story about Hunter Biden's laptop, even though you've got the story complete. Well, what happens if you take away those protections of Section 230? Does it actually create more opportunities for no one to be heard? And how do these cases that the Supreme Court is about to hear affect all of us? Jake Denton joins us right now, research associate in the Tech Policy Center at the Heritage Foundation. And of course, you've been uh, following these things. You've been writing uh, over the past few months uh, about uh, how, for example, we need to ban TikTok from operating in the United States. Uh, you, You take a look at some of the censorship conversations that are going on regarding Google and regarding others. This is a whole different ballgame. When you take a look at what this Gonzalez versus Google is, break it down for us, Jake. What is this case and how can it possibly affect all of us? Yeah, so this case really attacks the Communications Decency Act of 1996. Uh, So that's where Section 230 comes from, uh, which kind of gives broad uh, immunity to big tech platforms. Uh, It shields them as publishers. Um, So anything that is you know, offensive content, things of that nature, they're protected from the liability of that um, due to kind of uh, broad interpretations of the the text of the law. And so um, essentially what this case is arguing is that the algorithm that uh, Google uses on YouTube to deliver uh, kind of content recommendations is not protected under Section 230. And it calls into question kind of the broader uh, scope of Section 230 in kind of the modern digital age. So I think what the court is beginning to realize is that, you know, Section 230 came about in the days of AOL. You know, Mark Zuckerberg was still around the age of uh, a middle school student. And now we're dealing with a whole new Internet. And I think we're calling into question a lot of these protections uh, because they simply uh, weren't thought of back then, these issues that we're dealing with today. So one of the, the conversations, Jake, talking to Jake Denton, D-E-N-T-O-N, Research Associate at the Tech Policy Center at the Heritage Foundation, is that here you have the, 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 this family saying that they have a family member, a victim of a terrorist attack in Paris in 2015. And what they are actually suing about, what their their lawsuit claims, is that Google violated U.S. anti-terrorism laws because an ISIS video appeared in YouTube's recommendations. 
And their argument, which admittedly is fascinating on the legal, is that Section 230 protections should not apply because YouTube's algorithms suggested the videos. So as the the quote comes from a Daphne Keller, uh, she directs the program on platform regulation at Stanford's Cyber Policy Center. It basically boils down to saying platforms are not liable for content posted by ISIS, but they are liable for recommendation algorithms that promoted that content. In your view, is that a worthy argument that the court might take seriously? Yeah, I think so. And, you know, if we look back to, uh, you know, some of the old statements from Clarence Thomas, um, he kind of signals that the court wouldn't take up a Section 230 case of this nature unless there was a, a worthy challenge to the, the text. And so I think, you know, the court is considering this a legitimate challenge. And I think we should as well, if you really look at the core of this argument, um, the way it attacks the, the algorithms that these platforms use, um, you know, it, it really it does make sense from both a legal perspective and just a common sense perspective. When you're a user on these platforms such as YouTube, they're actively recommending you videos. And if you really look at the protections that uh, it supposedly shields against in Section 230, it doesn't really seem as though it applies. I mean, uh, you know, if you're a, an ISIS terrorist and you're scrolling through YouTube and it takes you down this radicalization pathway, um, there should be some liability on Google's end. And uh, frankly, you know, they've spent so much time deplatforming conservative perspectives that they've allowed uh, kind of ISIS content, this extremist content to just go unmoderated. And so they can hide behind the algorithm all they want. But when it comes to the, the courtroom and what they're going to interpret, it seems as though they, they lean on the side of, you know, the protections not applying. So if they go about that, and they say, and the court says, you know what, uh, this is indeed, uh, and, and a, let's call it, they'll say it's an abuse of Section uh, 230, right? And that you have to now get rid of this, and these platforms have to be held liable for what it is uh, that is on their platforms. The argument is, and this is an argument from Facebook and others, that that's the end. That's where the real censorship comes into play because these platforms are going to be so absolutely freaked out. They're going to be like, nope, can't have this, can't have that, can't have the other. And what you'll see is more regulation of speech and not less. Is that a concern? So I think what we're seeing here is that, you know, these tech companies view this as a legitimate possibility to kind of uh, take away these protections. And so they're playing to our side, right? They're saying, you know, we're going to censor you more if you uh, you challenge these things. But the reality is this isn't going to get rid of all of the Section 230 protections. This is going to, uh, in theory, it could strip immunity if they censor, you know, constitutionally protected speech or um, otherwise kind of uh, political uh, speech rather than, you know, every single thing that you post on uh, a social media platform uh, you're liable for. You know, there will still be carve outs for, you know, lewd and otherwise um, kind of uh, offensive content as is already written into the the law, but um, this isn't going to completely uproot Section 230. It's going to uh, take a modern approach to the protections that um, you know it didn't really consider back in the day before you know social media was even invented. So this is really modernizing 230. This isn't going to get rid of all of the protections that they're awarded. 
Talking to Jake Denton, Research Associate, Tech Policy Center at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, your associate over there, uh, Theo Wold, uh, visiting fellow in tech policy uh, at, there at Heritage, writing in the pages of Newsweek uh, just this uh, past week uh, that that immunity, meaning Section 230, is expansive on its face. But big social media wants even more. The platforms want Section 230 to immunize their proprietary recommendation algorithms, too. These are the algorithms that sort, rank, and recommend user-generated content and targeted advertisements to social media consumers. You're stating that the tech companies, uh, if, if I were to uh, paraphrase that, me think thou doth protest too much. That if you, if you find them guilty in this regard, uh, you eliminate Section 230, or at least its protections, and it's all just a giant hellscape of censorship from there. That's what they're saying. What you're saying, and what I think what uh, Theo Wold is saying here is, that doesn't have to be the case, that you're already having them act in this willy-nilly way of censoring anything they want, any time they want, now the onus is to actually, what, do it right or to do it less? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. I think, uh, you know, the way that Theo encapsulates the issue is perfect. Uh, you know, if you look at social media content moderation in its current state, um, they're doing a lot of the things that they're basically telling us they're, uh, they're not capable of doing in the Section 230 objections. You know, they're combing through what they view as hate speech and they're, you know, successfully able to get rid of all of that. But when it comes to, you know, terrorist content or things of that nature, they act as though it's an impossible task. So it's really just shifting their focus. If we protect political speech, uh, it gives them, you know, maybe some more opportunities to go after more offensive things such as, uh, you know, terrorist uh, content on the platforms. Um, but at the end of the day, they possess all the capabilities necessary to successfully kind of moderate content on the platform without impeding on our constitutional freedoms, without kind of taking away our, our freedom of speech. Uh, but they choose not to. They choose to target conservative speech. They choose to target, you know, things that don't really align with the Silicon Valley worldview. And so, you know, whether it be terrorist content or otherwise offensive things, they run wild on the platform. And so ultimately, this is going to really put them back in line. It's going to make sure that the correct forms of content are moderated on the platform. If you were a betting man, um, taking a, a look at how uh, this case is going to get heard today and has been heard and, and what's coming tomorrow, Knowing this court, knowing this subject matter, what's your take? What's your bet in Vegas? Are we going to see the court state that Section 230 should be obliterated, uh, that uh, Section 230 does not protect on an algorithm, that Section 230 covers all and therefore you cannot find, you cannot hold uh, Google liable? What do you think this court's coming back at, whether it's you're going as an overall or you want to break it down uh, justice by justice? Yeah, well, frankly, it's going to be very tough to say at this point in time, you know, listening to the, the oral arguments today, I think it's very evident that there's kind of a haze of confusion surrounding the case. Um, you know, even some of the brightest lawyers in the country are, you know, struggling to interpret kind of the broad uh, nature of Section 230. And so, you know, I think what it really highlights is regardless of what the court decides, uh, legislators are going to need to step up here in the wake of this case and actually 
propose a legislative solution to Section 230 that gives a clear path forward for content moderation and the protections awarded to these social media platforms. Um, I would say that, you know, maybe they touch on uh, Section 230 and the answer to this case. I mean, really, it's a it's a question still of the U.S. anti-terrorism laws and the protections awarded as well. Um, and so, you know, after they answer that question and they get to the Section 230 moment, you know, it's tough to see a, a world in which they perfectly solve for all of the issues. Um, you know, maybe they touch a little bit on the algorithms. Um, but at the end of the day, there will still be a clear need for a legislative bill put forward and passed that kind of gives a, a new guideline for social media companies. I don't I don't disagree on that. I agree wholeheartedly. This is going to be where Congress has to do its job because the the Supreme Court can't create law. That's not what it does. Um, Before I let you go, how much is Europe and other nations looking at this? Because they solve their problems by stating that, well, we don't actually believe in free speech and we don't believe in the idea that people can share content that we don't like. And we've already created mounds of legislation that prevent this from being said and that from being said and the other. The United States is different and unique. And so therefore, when we take a look at this, we have, there. it becomes a lot more intricate and interesting. Uh, does Is Europe, do they have a, a vested interest in the results of this case? So Europe takes a much heavier handed approach to their regulation of the Internet. I think, you know, if you look back to the GDPR, which is essentially a, a digital bill of rights for the European citizen, you can kind of see that in, in clear, clear as day. Right. Uh, they are probably years and years ahead of us in terms of their interpretations of the Internet and the direction it's headed as to where we're playing catch up with a lot of these kind of uh, older laws and older protections such as Section 230. Um, while, you know, there is probably a vested interest in terms of pushing for heavier content moderation, um, Europe really won't be affected because they force the government or they force the tech companies to kind of go along with uh, all of their laws, regardless of what we're up to. Um, you know, there might be some kind of global interest in terms of pushing for heavier regulation on speech and um, you know, they'll certainly push for that. But at the end of the day, they're going to do whatever they want anyways, and they're going to force the tech companies to kind of abide by their censorship laws as well. Yeah, I, w- I would never say that they were uh, years ahead of us. They are years of authoritarian ahead of us when it yeah. comes to free <laughs> yeah, speech conversations true. is the way it is. Jake Denton, Research Associate, Tech Policy Center at the Heritage Foundation, heritage.org. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us. We've got more to get to. I'm Tony Katz. So Speaker McCarthy hands over to Tucker Carlson of Fox News 41,000 hours of video footage, surveillance footage from January 6th. Oh, dang. Dang. I want to see it. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Where is mine, Speaker McCarthy? Um, producers for Carlson were on Capitol Hill going through everything which includes multiple camera angles, according to Axios, from all over the Capitol grounds, and uh, we'll start seeing things. Like, what actually happened? Like, who got invited into the Capitol? Maybe we'll have a couple different versions of how Ashley Babbitt got shot and whether or not that should have happened, because it's okay to ask whether or not that should have happened. I don't condone the riot. I don't. But I don't get angry at people who got invited into the Capitol. I don't get angry 
at, at people who, well, didn't do anything wrong because they were walking around. They're somehow terrible people. They got invited in. If the door was open, there was no security. Now, I feel I, I have find myself a bit torn about Ashley Babbitt. I don't understand why she was shot. I understand why she could have been arrested, though. I understand that very, very clearly. If you're going to talk about people screaming, where's uh, Mike Pence, and talking about a noose, well, that's different than someone who was told, no, 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 just come on in. Very, very different. And it will show possibly, well, I'm one of the things I'm hoping it's showing, where was the security? What was the security like? When you show me the footage of uh, Capitol Police being attacked, I don't, I don't not believe the footage. Am I going to see something else that contradicts that? Really what I'm looking forward to seeing is what it is that Adam Schiff and Eric Swalwell and Jamie Raskin didn't want us to see. What is it that Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger didn't want us to view while they were lecturing to us about how bad Trump is and how good they are? That's what I want to see. In the end, that's what I want to see. What didn't they want to show us? I doubt that there's anything that's going to... um, make me think, oh, none of this ever happened the way uh, they said it did. I think some of it happened clearly. But uh, tell me more about Ray Epps. This guy screaming to people to go to the Capitol that all of a sudden they decided, oh, we're not going to charge this guy. No, 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 this guy was no big deal. Well, how many more Ray Epps's were there? Yeah. Getting this uh, this footage is a big deal. And I certainly have faith in Tucker's team to get it out there. I would just like to see more people have access to it. That would be me. Find everything. TonyKatz.locals.com. I'm Tony Katz. Tomorrow, everyone. Take care.